Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. The guest of this episode of Lateral Conversations is Greg Henriquez. Greg Henriquez is an American psychologist at James Madison University in Virginia. He is the author of A New Unified Theory of Psychology and he has developed a new meta-theoretical system for psychology articulated in many professional journals like, for example, Psychology Today. He teaches courses in personality theory, personality assessment, social psychology and adult psychotherapy. We had a high energy and wide-ranging conversation about his theory of knowledge. We talked about big history and complexity, the problems of psychology, as well as the development of consciousness. Well, the devil of all that is in the details. Check out this episode of Lateral Conversations. Have a good day and good luck. So you, you mentioned initially the meta observer stance mm -hmm. in differentiation to a, some form of bland uh, spiritual indifference, right? Which, well, uh -huh. yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a so I'm a psychologist. So I'm a, you know I'm a uh, American clinical psychologist steeped in tradition. So we took from the Eastern world, you know, the really the mindfulness kind of tradition, but we put it in our own sort of stance of uh, participant observer, uh, I think, in a, in, and so for me, what I do is psychological mindfulness, and that is that I don't do a lot of meditation, but I'm constantly engaged in the interface between I'm in my thoughts and being my thoughts, and I jump out and see myself as an object. Of right. That. And it's that I maintain that interface. Uh, I teach people how to cultivate that interface because I believe that that's crucial to psychological growth and resilience because it allows you to many, many people that I work with get trapped, you know, in their sort of mindless reacting selves. And they do not know how uh, to, when they get trapped, they don't know how to step outside and right. become aware and accept. And so it is that, it's that cultivation uh, of sort of the dual stance of in the flow and then meta observer on right. the flow. Um, so I'm coming more from the philosophical side. And so mm -hmm. for me, it's like um, I, I really like to work with the model of autopoiesis in ah. regard of, uh, of, of consciousness and psyche. And yes. so for me, it's always like this, this um, observer stance you're talking about. It's always the awareness of how I'm constructing my internal uh, narration, my perspectives and how they have their own way of 
constructing me in a way. Yes. And so that, that me is like kind of a vortex of all my constructions. And so I have to navigate. And so, and so I, I can see the different narratives and I, yeah, I, I, I'm in the phase of my life where I have to choose which one of the more Brilliant. healthiest ones. So absolutely. Yeah, right. no, that, that resonates deeply with me. Uh, I have, uh, you know, I, I don't have my training in philosophy, but I spent a lot of time in uh, philosophy, really built my own philosophical system. Uh, and so, and that very much resonates with me in terms of the concept of self. I like that metaphor of a vortex and then in between different kinds of narratives uh, that are floating around. That's, that re resonates deeply. Yeah, and I think like to, to come uh, to, to the point of our, of our conversation, because I listened to a, a podcast of yours where you talked about, and also on your webpage, about the problem of psychology so that there's no unified theory and and in a way um i hope i find the the point here is then it's that in its a way it's a it's a it's a postmodern problem because like as a, as a science psychology is very much a postmodern science and nobody knows exactly what postmodernity is there's uh, <laughs> There's no consensus about what it is. You know, you you ask an architect and a philosopher and a uh, 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 like a poet, yep. so to say, and they all have different approaches to to postmodernity. And the same is kind of true for psychology. So you Absolutely. have like different approaches, but you know, it's not it's not really clear what it is, and more profoundly, it's not even clear what psyche in and itself is. That's right. So and I I found this. Um, like a very intriguing entry point for our conversation and and maybe your perspectives on that because i think it's one of the most fundamental questions like what That's is right. psyche what is right. what is consciousness after after 4000 years of <laughs> cultural development we have all these theories yep. but it's like we still don't know what it is that's right so that's right so, so that is, uh, thank you for noting that. That is certainly a center point of my own reflection. Um, and so, yeah, I mentioned that I'm trained as professionally as a psychologist, a clinical and theoretical psychologist. And, and it was in the context of my own development in graduate school that it dawned on me uh, that actually there is a something profoundly different about psychology uh, and its place in our in the sciences or uh, the academic disciplines, uh, and and what I like to point out to people is that if you go to physicists and you ask them, well, what is physics? Uh, they'll say it's they're pretty clear. It's the science of energy and matter and their interactions, uh, maybe in the context of space and time, uh, maybe the you know the behavior of the universe as a whole. They're, they're, those, and both of those things correspond. You go to chemists. Uh, you go to biologists. What is biology? Biology is the science of life, okay, for all biologists. And, and although they'll debate about what exactly they mean about the edges of life, um, that, that defines their subject matter. Um, and then you get to psychology, right? <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and it's a remarkable thing that it tries to claim that it is a science, okay? Uh, like many people, at least the scientists side of the field, try to claim it's every bit as much of a science as biology. And and all that, but actually, when you get inside of it, you realize there's no shared language system right. that even allows you to say, "Well, these this is the center of the subject matter that defines the domain of inquiry that we're really interested in." 
Why is that? Right. Because we are all entangled in it. I mean, like yeah. if you if you have the, the natural sciences, you can you can observe a system from from the outside, and you can you can um, uh, um, think about its properties. But you are always, when you think about the psyche, you do that as psyche. That's right. Okay, so there's. It turns out there's lots of problems. <laughs> right. That that there's no there's there's no coherent philosophical system that has been built that everybody agrees. Okay, this philosophical system solves the multitude of problems that you start to face. Okay, and that's what I that's what I'm passionate about. I think I actually built a a scientific worldview that answers exactly the problems that. Uh, historically have been faced by psychologists and set the stage for a new shift from the current postmodern state, which is a pre-paradigmatic, multiple, fragmented language game state, to invite psychologists to move to then say, actually, these are the foundational problems. Here's the only philosophical system that actually solves the problems clearly. And now we can move and say, this is what psychology is as a science. Right. This is how it relates to the humanistic realities uh, of, of being, and this is how it solves all these different language games and makes them coherent. So that's, that's my passion, that's my world uh, of, of exploration. Um, and I say, yeah, the evidence for psychology being so disorganized is evidence for us lacking such a philosophical system. That's really, you know, you go back to what is mind and what is matter, okay, at a philosophical level. Right. And, and trying to figure out a modern scientific understanding of the relationship between mind and matter is really a lot of what psychology has been about. And people have answered that question in a whole host of different ways. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's where I we are. I mean, it's also, also Worf and, and linguistic. So the, the, the way we use speech and language and right. what, what terms we have and how we grew up and the cultural background and all of this, all of this determines in a way how we, how we approach that subject matter, and so it, it and and not only and, and it's own, uh, also shapes the way we we, we view that's right. psyche. That's right. So that's that's a complex problem, and and we can't <laughs> really step out of this process, and that's that's the problem. Yes, exactly. And so there haven't been ways to step out of it in the past that allow us to gain the kind of necessary clarity about all of that. So we are, we're embedded in our language games and language systems, our, our core cultural categories that we use to make sense out of the world. Like what is our essence? How do we understand that? Um, these things vary tremendously uh, and it's been a real challenge. And so what happened to the field is that the that the pioneers of modern psychology, of course, the word psychology, and at least what it concerns itself with, you know, in many ways goes right back to philosophy. Right. Okay. So the earliest problems of philosophy, if we think like about Plato's cave, you know, uh, if we say Western philosophy, it's like, okay, well, how do you know that appearances are not just appearances relative to reality? How do you know that where do you, where does the mind operate and where's reality out here? And you got to be a philosopher to climb outside the cave and then start making sense out of that. And of course, Plato did it one way with uh, idealism ultimately, uh, or at least what we call idealism. And then, you know, uh, Aristotle says, no, it's really about substance monism. Uh, and voila, we get one of the great philosophical debates, but the right. relationship between uh, that, it's interesting since what is psyche, Aristotle is really where the term or uh, sort of gets its oldest uh, kind of clear definition. 
Um, and, and what he meant by the term, uh, the soul or psyche, is really the form of a person's life or really the form of life in general, ultimately. Right. Um, is the form, and, and that's actually not a bad definition. I, I think that that's got a lot of, there are a lot of ways to turn Aristotle's conception of the psyche into a modern scientific one. Right. In preparation for, for this podcast, somehow Levi Strauss and all the, the anthropologists came up because I, I, don't, I don't know, I think he was it who said that in prehistoric times, the, the physical and the social domain were kind of entangled with each other. So you had like right. the pre prehistoric uh, uh, tribes who think uh, by manipulation of speech and stuff like that, you can manipulate kind of the outcome of the hunt. Yes. so to speak. So, sure. and, and so um, by, by our evolution, we disentangled that. That's right. In a way. So that is the domain of, of the physical and this is the domain of the cultural. But, you know, I, I was thinking about the line that the, there's still with postmodernity a kind of entanglement between social and cognitive. And so, so mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think like, while you mentioned like like uh, metamodernism or integral and all these meta systems yeah they try to what they at least in my understanding what they try to do is disentangle like the the social conditioning and the language approach to to uh to psyche right. and try to understand yeah how can we how can we approach psyche Uh, independently of, you know, can we build a meta system? That's exactly right. So. That's exactly right. And that's what the, that's what, so the, uh, well, my journey was very much in parallel to that. So, right. so, it's a, so, so the unified theory is very much like Ken Wilber's integral in the sense that it is sort of a psychologically, philosophically informed big picture system that says you actually can integrate and achieve knowledge um, that, that transcends postmodern critique. Right. Um, and so it does it differently than Ken Wilber's uh, system, uh, but it is it, it, the task of it is very similar. Uh, how how is it different? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? I mean, we're sure. talking now about the talk system, right? Yes, the TOK. I yeah. usually I usually say each letter out. So the TOK stands for the Tree of Knowledge System, uh, and folks can certainly Google that, and we can uh, talk that through. Uh, so the TOK system is a new system for understanding science in a way that's commensurate with humanistic being in the world. And what I mean by that is it, it, it offers a new onto epistemology of what science is uh, that I think then sets the stage for us to solve some of the problems that psychology struggled with. Um, and so one of the things that it says about, sort of, for example, the mind versus matter problem is that we've gone about the mind versus matter dichotomy all wrong. It, it, and, and the reason that we've gone about it all wrong is that we tried to make it into a dichotomy by focusing on the absolute ends of the spectrum. So on the one hand, say there's atoms. You know, atoms are the most material, or, or obviously there's particles even make up atoms or whatever. And then there's us in this self-conscious mind way of being, right? And we, and we have all these opposite There's so much difference in the way in which you and I now are conversing and thinking versus the way an atom behaves, okay? So those are the, and that looks, how do we make sense out of this gigantic difference between the quintessential matter and right. the quintessential mind, okay? And that's, that's one of Western intellectual history's great challenges. And the tree of knowledge says, well, actually, 
we are now in a place based on our scientific and philosophical developments to actually answer that question much more clearly. And to get the basic outline of the answer correct, we have to realize about the evolution of complexity over time. Right. Okay. So, so we need to put that in. And this is certainly something that Ken Wilber would look at in general. Um, and he would talk about the evolution of spirit because he thinks about spirit in an ontological way that I would have a slight difference with. So I start with energy and matter, and I interpret the base of energy and matter very similarly to the physicists. Okay, uh, so what you have are objects, fields uh, that we can study uh, via measurement and gather information from, uh, and they behave in fairly mechanistic uh, um, uh, terms. Uh, and I and I think that we can account for why atoms do what they do reasonably well with quantum mechanics, and then into Newtonian theory, and of course general relativity. And but what happens from a tree of knowledge perspective is something very different happens when we get to life. Okay, so the evolution of life, uh, and this is their, uh, the tree of knowledge, if you see it, it's four upside down cones. Um, it has, and, and, it, and it, the cones are labeled matter, life, mind, and culture. Okay. Right. And these represent different planes of complexity. Okay. Or planes of existence. So life is a so culture is uh, over over mind. Cultures over mind. Absolutely. Oh, why? Why is absolutely. that? Because you have to. Well, I, um, so you got to get used to the language system that I developed. So uh, I don't define mind in the same way that, say, Rene Descartes defined mind. Oh, right. Okay. Rene Descartes, in my language system, mind for Rene Descartes was the human self consciousness system. Okay which is outgrowth of mind, but the term mind really should not be referenced just at the human person level. Okay. The term mind should reference the animal level. All right. Okay. So actually the term mind in the tree of knowledge system refers to the unique way in which animals behave. <laughs> okay. Uh, and what that means is, is that mind uh, is the domain of mental behavior. All right. Okay, which is the behavior of an animal as a whole that's mediated by the nervous system, All okay, right. inside and out. Okay, so other animals behave, they've, and, and as you go up the scale, they clearly feel and they think, not in the same kind of way that you and I are having this conversation, okay, but right. they obviously, they have experiences, they have good and bad things that they seek, uh, higher animals form relationships, uh, you know, mothers take care of their offspring, they care about dying. Obviously, they have a state of mind. Obviously. So, so, that's, so mind, for me, refers to that state, okay. okay? And that we should utilize the term mind to correspond to uh, the animal mental plane of existence, okay? And, and it is out of that animal mental plane that the culture human person plane evolves, okay? And it is, and just like Uh, what the tree of knowledge says is if I go back down to life, I'll go back down to life. That's the cell plant dimension. The cell plant dimension is organized by things like genetics formed by natural selection that gives rise to this very complex self-organizing system. Okay. That's not really reducible mechanically uh, to the physical dimension. It operates at a higher level of sort of self-organization of information processing and communication. Sure. between mm -hmm. cells okay and it's that network that gives rise to the complex adaptive systems of life and that's why the science of biology will never reduce to chemistry and physics it doesn't it's a different it's a different language game to map a different set of processes 
Okay. Sure. So, so then you have this cell and the, and the cell's got an inner, inner memory and information processing system with it. And that's what gives rise to it. And now you go from cells and plants into animals uh, and the nervous system, it, what the nervous system does is it connects all the cells together. So right. you get a multicellular entity that can behave uh, in real time as a singular object. And it is that sensory motor movement that lays is the foundation of what I call mind. And it sets the stage for a whole different, that's why uh, insects behave so differently than plants. Okay. Right. So insects have complex bodies and they're running around, they do all this stuff. Uh, and then you just start going up the scale of, right. of animal behavior and, and mentation. And so that's what mind is. And also, and, and, also culturally, like the next stage, yeah. the, the mm -hmm. process um, reproduces in a way, in a, in a higher right. level. That's right. So, so just that, like, that you have like a Greek culture, but there's no mm -hmm. concept of an eye. Right. Right. Well, yeah. So that, uh, if you're talking at about, least in the literature, there's well, no there's the Ju right. So that uh, you may be talking about Julian James's uh, bicameral mind theory about what the eye is in and when does the real self-conscious system emerge? <laughs> okay. So that's I've got lots to say about that. Um, right. But um, but yes, certainly. But so as happens, far as I'm sorry, but as far as I understand, that would fit your theory. It does. Uh, because yes. because because his theory is that in the in the early scriptures, there's no individual eyes. Like it's like there's no internal life who's right. depicted, and so that came later. But you already have the social networks and the social communities. And I mean, like uh, I, I think it was Napoleon who said first, like I, I am fate. Yes. And so and and he was he was the one who who, you know, it was a vital part of modernity and the, 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 uh, the how you say that, the, the emergence of the individual as such. That is, that's right. In oh. fact, Shakespeare plays an enormous role because right. what Shakespeare does is Shakespeare gives rise to the soliloquy and, and, the, and, the, and the reflections on self on a public stage in a way that no other playwright had done. So now everyone can observe the inner life publicly. Right. And the richness with which Shakespeare hands people's ways of thinking about the inner life is itself transformative. Of course, the printing press was transformative in many ways, and before that, writing. So we have absolutely seen an enormous number of evolution. What the, the tree of knowledge calls culture, okay, is the idea, um, and certainly by 50,000 years ago, so we're talking about, you know, modern humans, um, we see a pretty big change in the kinds of technologies that modern humans are using about 50,000 years ago. And then there's an acceleration off of that uh, in terms of the kinds of change. So there's evidence of significant behavioral change, which I think is evidence of a particular kind of cognitive, linguistic cognitive change. Right. And the linguistic cognitive change is, is well identified by a man by the name of uh, Merlin Donald, uh, who, who authored a book about the origin of human consciousness and culture. Uh, and he calls it the emergence of the mythic mind, okay, uh, which here we're talking about the human mind, and the myth refers to our linguistic systems of meaning, okay? So how do we tell stories about what the heck is happening right. uh, uh, about the world and coordinate our behavior and make sense out of the world? Uh, the tree of knowledge identifies this as the dimension of justification, Okay. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so justification is the is the functional verbal structure of our exchange. Uh, justification refers to propositions that have meaning making that we then wonder about whether or not they're legitimate. 
okay, and then develop structures of legitimizing, okay, that then tell us who we are. I, I uh, when I was reading that, I, I was struggling a little bit with that concept because you have to correct me if I'm if I got, got that wrong because you meant by that the uh, the auditive narration you have in in your head in a way and by which you seek justification of what you're doing but you know this is not the only way you can use um, no. uh, like audit auditive internal thinking you can uh -huh. it's like so what right. do you mean so by that it's broader than that uh, so so the first thing that i would say is it's it really refers to justification the claim that i make is that the structural organization of verbal thought okay all verbal thought is, is functionally organized in terms of blocks of justification Okay. In other words, they're meaning-making propositions, all right, that then are yoked together, and then they frame the ex communication language exchange between people. But isn't there, like, like why justification? Isn't there, like, a judgment in there? Because, like, why, I mean, like, right. if, I, if I think about a project, mm -hmm. you know, or, or have a logical thought, it's not about just to justify no, right. anything. So, Right. Well, okay, so, so the word justify me in justification is a very complicated word, it turns out. Oh, right, okay. Okay. I, I consider a suitcase word that rolls in lots of different meanings uh, and, and really is a fulcrum center point, okay? Uh, so, for example, as a philosopher, okay, uh, I would argue that one of the foundational problems, especially in epistemology, is justification. What is a legitimate thought? Okay, so, so in, that, in that context, that word has that meaning. In my context, where it really catches, okay, is, is that there's a change that happens in linguistic communication from pure communication, where I'm just trying to get my information into your information. All right. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so early on, there's basically the, 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 what's really driving the communication is how do I get my information to your information? So they're antelope over there. Okay, and I would have a, just a way of framing that. Okay, and this is really before a tipping point of justification happens. The argument is, is that in the evolution of human cognition, a tipping point happens when the capacity to hold the claim and wonder about it with questions. Right. Okay? All right, so what then happens is, now that I see a propositional claim, then the issue is, when does the cognitive capacity arrive that says, well, maybe that's not right. Okay. But you're talking now, in, in other words, about critical thinking. Yes. Well, I'm talking, all right, the ability to hold and ask. Fundamentally, it just turns into the capacity to ask questions. Right. right. Okay. So now what you have here, when you, get a, when you get communication that then is challenged by questions, you get a question-answer dynamic. Right. Okay. And it is that, that question-answer dialectic that then gives rise to the problem of justification. Oh, right. Okay. Like, how do we know that this is legitimate? And how do we know that this says what is oh, right. okay. mm -hmm. and is what ought to be? And then the problem of just social, then I call this social justification because we're talking 50,000, 100,000 years ago. You're embedded in the world. You're just trying to figure out how to live as a hunter-gatherer, right? right? And then now all of a sudden we build mythic systems of justification so that we coordinate and make sense out of the world. Right. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. that, and that's what, a, what it, and then this is our mythologies. What are they? But systems of sense making justification for the world and our place in it. I mean, uh, have you, have you read René Girard? So his, uh, René Girard, how language and those thinking systems develop. And so his theory, theory is that 
um, you know, our prehistoric ancestors, you know, when they shared, uh, when they um, valued something, they uttered a sound, you know, like a weird sound. And okay. that sound was a substitute for that, which is what was regarded holy. And so you had something which you can suddenly observe from the outside right. and so right. Right, right. And indeed, yes, yeah, so this was right before then. So, the, so meaning there's all these good questions, and I've read other people about the evolution of language itself. Right. Okay. Uh, so I have ideas about what gives rise to language. There are a lot of experts out there. Um, what, what my theory takes off on is, okay, look at all those wonderful theories about language. And most people, evolutionists, say, well, the question is, how do we get to language? Because it's so hard cognitively, right? And we do need theories of that. My theory... Uh, comes in at once we get language to a tipping point where we can then have question answer dialogue right a new kind of problem takes off and that's this problem of social justification right okay, okay. and and it is this negotiation about what is justifiable that creates a whole nother evolutionary functional process mm -hmm. okay uh, and that it is that process of what is justifiable uh, that I think is unbelievably important in understanding the human person culture plane of existence. Okay. It's a defining feature in what it is that, and I, I'll, and the, so to understand that. Uh, let me, I'll let me, I'm yeah. sorry, let me get this straight. So, so you're talking about when language itself becomes a problem in a yes. way so that yep. you can talk about the mechanisms of language and of world uh, meaning making and, and world building via language and and speech. Yes. So you're, yep. you're not just using it, but you start to... Well, right. It, okay, so here's here's the... the Did I get that right? Did yes, you talk? Yeah, oh, right. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. So, right. So language reaches a tipping point where all of a sudden now, now we're, we've used the communication system as a tool, but then it grows and we... And then the issue is, well, how... How is this tool really evaluated in its utility? And that's right. what drives questions, okay? And, and I make the point that questions, the ability to ask questions is a lot easier than the ability to answer them, okay? Because once you learn how to say why, as any kid that grows up, you know, you hang out with a precocious three or four-year-old, and they'll be like, well, why is this? And why is that? Once they learn <laughs> that as a tool, right? And you're eventually like, well, why are you bald, Dad? And it's like, well, I don't know. You know, it just is what it is, right? Um, but that, that makes a point that I would make, is that is that actually, once you have the cognitive capacity to ask questions, they're a lot easier to ask them than to answer them. Right. And then, then they create this problem of how do you legitimize in general? So now we have what is legitimate, okay? That's a problem, which basically is how do we build norms uh, that coordinate our action, okay? And, and that's the general problem of society, or one of the central general problems. It's really what I call the problem of culture, okay? Right. How do we build norms that make sense out of what is and what ought to be? The interesting thing, especially me as a psychologist, okay? So I'm, as a psychologist, as I'm focused on the individual human level, okay? And what... The, what dawned on me, I'm a clinical psychologist, okay, so I know a lot about people coming to me and telling me all their private thoughts, okay, and their sensitive thoughts. And of course, we, as clinical psychologists, we create this very, very private setting with confidentiality. Why do we need so much private setting, okay? And the reason is because people have a hell of a lot of thoughts that are dangerous if everyone in the social world knew them. Sure. Right? Okay. There is a filtering process between what we feel is going on inside of our head 
and what we are doing out here publicly, right? Sure. So, uh, this is a basic insight, okay? Well, what is that filtering process fundamentally about, okay? Well, the problem of social justification at the individual level gives a really interesting lens to understand what the problem is about, okay? So language gives me a window, other people a window into our head. And now I can ask you, Tom, what do you really think about so-and-so or such-and-such, -such, right? Well, you don't always want to tell me exactly everything that you think, okay? Because now to make that information public, now all of a sudden I have access to information that helps me maybe, but works against your interests, right. okay? So, so the questions open up a window, but the window is such that you don't necessarily want to share everything. So that creates a filtering dynamic where your language part of you has to interpret what's going on inside that you have access to and figure out a way to socially justify it so that you share the narrative in a way that doesn't hurt your interests. I mean, it's like, it's, uh, I mean, um, that, that was the astonishing um, thing that Freud basically did, that he, that he uh, invented a language game in a room where you can talk about those things and get into like a clinical context. And I mean, like that, that, that was the genius of his, of his, uh, bingo, bingo. So, so exactly. So what I argue is, is that what I am doing here is I'm taking Freud's central observation. So let's talk about Freud's central observation, which is the model that social, what's socially acceptable out here often conflicts with the biological, psychological drives that somebody has, say, right. for sex and aggression, right? In Victorian Europe, I've got sex and aggression needs, and in proper Victorian Europe, you're not even allowed to think those thoughts, right? Right. So what do people do is they jam them into a closet, right? right. And Freud realized that enormous amount of suffering stemmed from the closeting repression right. of those thoughts because the socially acceptable way of being, Ted said they were not justified and you'd be socially punished. And right. so it creates a split. Okay. So that's what I argue his fundamental observation was. All right. Uh, the justification. But it was ingenious. If you think about it like that, what he did, that he, that he opened up a space where you can, yeah. where, that's amazing. Absolutely. Mm. Totally. It's absolutely, as a psychotherapist, I mean, you know, it's absolutely brilliant and completely accurate across many different domains. Now what Freud didn't realize that it was that What he was seeing was at the structural level, there's a lot of truth to it, but there's also the case that he's embedded in a scientific understanding that's flawed and he's embedded in a cultural, he doesn't understand his own Victorian, European, white male, you know, way of, right, constructed right. way of being in the world. So he does lots of crazy things like women are inherently, you know, feeling <laughs> that they're inferior rather than just, well, they feel inferior because the whole damn society is defined against them in that right. Right. So Freud doesn't have the idea. He also doesn't understand exactly where this thing comes from evolutionarily. Okay. I think it was, wasn't it Jordan Peterson who, who talked about, I don't, I don't know who it was, but it's like, we, we are so in his, his invention is so much part of our life that we mostly talk about what Freud get, got wrong. Absolutely. You know? So, but sure. it's like so much what he got right. 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 Exactly. So the unit, what the unified paradigm says, my unified paradigm, it says virtually all the major paradigms have brilliant insights. Right. Okay. So I, I believe Skinner had brilliant insights. I believe Carl Rogers had brilliant insights. I believe Sigmund Freud 
and indeed many of his followers, especially the psychodynamic followers, you go to Jung and then you go to Adler and then you go to Karen Horney and Anna Freud, and the people that moved his theory closer to psychological science. And right now the psychodynamic view is a, uh, you know, scientifically oriented psychodynamic view is a very powerful view. And it says right. that, that we have these relational needs like for power or love or attachment and they guide us, but we're also afraid of making them explicit. So we don't know how to negotiate them. So we create repression and defenses and, and that gets us right. in trouble. Um, the, the, the unified theory says, well, what Freud doesn't say is he doesn't say exactly why evolutionarily this interpretive mechanism system of justification evolves. Like why? So, where, so where, where would you locate this central insight like on a, with Keegan or with Wilbur like or historically when when does that happen when does it appear just right. like for orientation hmm? right so on the tree of knowledge the each the tree of knowledge says that there are these key joint points between different dimensions like so there's a mind to culture joint point and the justification idea or justification hypothesis which is the idea that the language reaches a tipping point that creates this question and answer thing. This launches the problem of justification. And now interpretation and public private dimension around language becomes increasingly a problem. And it's this that spurs the evolution of culture. Right. Okay. And so that happens about 50,000 years ago. Okay. And in terms of the literature, a lot of people talk about language and self-consciousness and the evolution of human culture. But this is a this is a unique insight that I had in 1996 um, and it and it and to 1997. So as far as I'm concerned, although people have danced around this idea, nobody got this idea just right, and this gets the idea just right. So um, people ha are understanding human consciousness in terms of its outline form, absolutely, but they don't really have the right evolutionary uh, model for right. what it is that really uh, drove it. And, they, and many people don't have an evolutionary model that also allows us to turn into an effective cultural model. Uh, and, and turns out, and my argument is, is that this cultural model then explains so much information that allows you to organize a lot of the core debates in the field and a lot of the confusion. Right, right. So it reminds a little bit, um, who, who did this big history yep. uh, model? So you have like this, this big history model with the different layers That's right. Uh, the, the physical, the, the cultural, and so on and so forth. Um, paired with, with the de de developmental approach. Do I get that right? Is that You got 100% right. In fact, we just, uh, my, I, I have a, a society called the Theory of Knowledge Society. Right. Um, and uh, we just published a paper in the Journal of Big History uh, that explains, uh, so Dave Christian is, is the founder of Big yes, History. Yes, yes. Um, and that's an academic movement now. He started that in the late 1980s. Um, and it, by, on his own, it's really grown. Uh, it's a wonderful, I think it's a very important movement. Um, and what it does is it provides a framework for understanding the big picture of science, right. scientific knowledge, on the dimensions of time. So, so from the Big Bang to the present and the dimensions of complexity from simple matter all the way up to culture. And that's exactly the, the way in which the tree of knowledge, which I developed independently of big history, uh, defines things. Now, what you'll see in the big history and what we pointed out in our big history paper was that big history has eight different thresholds of complexity. Okay, uh, that starts with basic particles and then into atoms and then plant, uh, planets and stars. And then it goes into life, okay? And then it jumps from life all the way up to human. It right. does not have a mind 
uh, animal mind. They shoot over that. And, and I think that that, what I argue is actually that's diagnostic of the confusion about our understanding of animal mind and where it fits and how we go from, uh, you know, life into animal mind and then animal mind into human persons and culture, human culture. Um, so we were showing, hey, the tree of knowledge is a new map of big history. Uh, and it, it defines complexity in a slightly different way, but it's also very commensurate with that, with that perspective. So I was just going to say, and, and the other point you made, which is exactly accurate, is that it, unlike big history, this also includes a psychological developmental model that, for example, would be very congruent uh, with Ken Wilber's evolution of consciousness model and, and those kinds of things. Right. So where exactly does, yeah, initially we talked about the disentanglement of, of culture and psyche and, you know, the, the awareness, say, uh, of, of the own autopoiesis by which we, in a way, construct our own subjective reality, you know? That's right. Mm -hmm. So where do, does that fit in? Where do you locate this in, 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 in your model? Like this kind right. of, because it's, 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 it's not, it's, it's a question, where would you, where would you um, position that? Right. So, so, uh, so we, we do want to think about this then in sort of developmental terms, both evolutionarily and uh, across an individual's lifetime, ontogenetically, okay? And in cultural evolution terms. So these are big evolutionary terms. If we're going to get the model of separating and understanding the complex feedback loops between these things, okay? All right. So, so let's start evolutionarily. We start with pre-linguistic Uh, primates. I'm always, I do a lot of stuff in primatology uh, and not, not, not original research by any stretch, but I'm, I track everybody, you know, the, those developments. All right. And so what you see in, in social monkeys and the great apes is a really rich relationship system. Okay. So these are, I believe these animals have very rich mental lives. I believe they perceive their attachments and their competitions. I believe they seek status in particular ways. They arrange Uh, their group settings, uh, and they vary tremendously as, as to how cooperative they are or how competitive. Bonobos or pygmy chimpanzees, very matriarchal and cooperative. Uh, uh, traditional chimpanzees, much more patriarchal and competitive, brutal um, in times. And so what we have, what we see there is a very rich uh, nonverbal perceptual life, okay? Right. Concerned with their place in the social world, uh, striving for social influence, And I believe we carry that. So, so um, we, I have a thing called what's called the influence matrix. Okay. And that's just a map uh, of how we seek social influence uh, on dimensions like power and love and freedom uh, and how we feel very wounded when we lose respect, are disrespected or kicked out. Um, that, that happens to us naturally. Okay. Meaning that that's part of our phenomenology. That's part of our natural structure. Uh, and really that to me is Freud's id is this, Uh, basic and then on top of that what we have is this narrating interpreter right okay the storyteller okay that's that's that so we have a phenomenological self okay uh actually the phenomenological self evolves out of a behavioral procedural self that's the stuff that allows us to be in the world and move around then we have a felt sense of being in relation that's the phenomenological self okay and then you have this justifying narrating self Okay, that's the storyteller and the storyteller to self and the storyteller to others about what's going on. Okay, now what, what happens is this remarkable interface between how, how we tell stories and what it means about how we feel and what we ought to do. Okay, so the storyteller doesn't just record on, but it also constructs 
the realities right. for the phenomenological and behavioral selves. Okay, this is the great insight or, or, or critique uh, in many ways of the postmodern critique is that the, all of our, what, we're, what philosophy was after was these foundational deductive truths that transcended all of you know, context. And the postmodern critique is essentially like, you can't get out of your situated storytelling language game context. All right, but we can, can't we? Well, that's, well, the, the tree of knowledge comes along and says, if you understand, okay, if you understand that, that this part of you is a justification interpretive system, okay, that is a legitimizing, that right. originates as a, that, then you actually, and then you put it in the tree of knowledge context, then you actually have a metamodern big history way of getting outside of the system as you also appreciate the postmodern critique that we are all a bunch of justifiers trying to get our social influence done. Right. So it so it actually it creates a theory that accounts for the postmodern critique and shows that it was missing in the original modernist interpretation, and then allows you a meta-modern synthesis that says, "Yeah, and it is a post-postmodern grand meta-narrative that I'm after." Right. So let's 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 get a little bit political. So okay. Be <laughs> because because apparently and obviously everybody is somewhat biased in one way. Well, we're all we're so, all individuals but, telling our story. You know, in our in, in our little um, listserv group, Bonita Roy said something about metamodernism that it's all about, you know, being. It's not. It's, I'm not paraphrasing. It's just how <laughs> I got her message. So how that that we have to be be able to be free from an entanglement in a way to certain political affiliations because yep. we we see that it's a. Uh, that's a storytelling, that's a justification system that's like maybe historically grown. I, yep. I, I've read some weird paper uh, three weeks ago which argued that um, the left-right dichotomy um, resulted from migration so that the, mm. that the forefront, that the, the people who went to new places that mm -hmm. where, where, where everything was abundant like fruits and Okay. You know everything, and so the the lifestyle was more liberal, where mm -hmm. those people who stayed back mm. um, had to fight for for more, okay. um, mm -hmm. and so develop more more conservative stance. So it's a wild theory, which I, I don't know if it's true, but you know, in one way, Hyde argues that it's like deeply ingrained in us. So yes. more, more to be left or yep. right leaning, Absolutely. and so. Uh -huh. But I also think, like in a way, metamodernism or post-postmodern or whatever you call it. It's yep. about being able to see what kind of attachments you have and bring into your life and, and to be able to be more playful with it, I think, in a way. I agree. I agree. It, 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 you know, it takes a metacognitive observer at some level, right? right? Okay. And it allows you to say, oh, I'm just a justifier, you know, right. at some level. And, and that is absolutely true. And I, I embrace that. And, right. and it, I also appreciate Uh, like, for example, the listening society, you know, one of the things that at least is trying to do is say, really ask, well, what are our foundational values? Right. Okay? Which I do believe if you're really going to build a justification system that actually is up to the task, that's a very important thing to be able to do. Is step right. outside your stream, but in a meta-reflective way, say, actually, what do we really value? And, and build a, an authentic system of justification 
off of those core values. That's, right. that's what the system taught me is like, you know, I'm never going to get out of my justification. I can step out of it, wonder fundamentally, and then enter back into it with foundations about what it is that ultimately I am seeking. What's the ultimate good that I, that my phenomenological embodiment really is about. You know, what yeah, we, we are beings in the world and we have to enact something, you know, That's so, right. we, so, but at the same time, I always had the feeling that the integral tone or voice was a little bit more, more right leaning, you know, and yeah. uh, the metamodernism. Well, kind of sort of more left-leaning you know yeah, no, that's and, definitely true and certainly right. like jordan look at jordan peterson right i mean uh, jordan peterson and and uh and the way in which ken wilbur talks about postmodernism, you know as the mean green meme right you know that's he's got uh and uh, you know i you know my take on the if we want to get into a little bit of the politics yes i believe i am very sympathetic to jordan peterson and ken wilbur inside the context of the academy Okay, right. so, so I'm a professor, I live inside the context of the academy, and at least in North America, the academy has become so concerned with diversity and inclusion, and that mantra that has dominated the value system, uh, that it has become somewhat totalitarian, or, or risks of becoming somewhat totalitarian. That is, everybody righteously knows that the unheard voices need space to be heard because of the white male patriarchy. Right. And therefore, anybody that claims that instantaneously is granted a microphone. And anybody that questions the microphone handing off is immediate, especially if you're a white male, heaven forbid, that you would actually question, why are we listening to this person? And it's like, oh my God, you know, and I've encountered this and, and you know, inside the academy, I'm sort of kind of on the conservative side. I like, I say we should listen to Jordan Peterson's arguments right. and wonder about that. Of course, Outside the, I live in rural Virginia, um, we, where 80% of the people around me voted for Trump. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, so outside the academy, yeah, no, certainly the United States has got a lot of problems with, you know, racism and these kinds of ideas that need to be uh, addressed. And so uh, then the argument, you know, of an angry white guy like uh, Jordan Peterson feels less compelling to me outside right. the academy. So right. it really depends on the context. Uh, but it no, is... I guess that, but I was always wondering because there's this accusation that he doesn't understand, say, postmodernity and the benefits mm -hmm. of that. But at the same time, I'm thinking, and I'm, maybe you have a take on this because, like, he, as far as I understand, he worked for 20 years in the upper echelons of psychology and yep. Harvard and he Toronto. And, and so, he which and are, I have the exact same training. So, I'm, so I'm and which, which are basically postmodern trainings. So, you, and, and in, my, in my point of view, you can't really be holding this position for 20 years without, <laughs> without understanding the core values of postmodernity. You know, how, how, how would you, as a, as a modernist, atomist, survive uh, at, the at the chair of Harvard as a, in a psychology department? That doesn't work, really. So, right. so in a way, he, he, you know, I mean, for, for my personal taste, he's a little bit emotional too much, like with, with his thing. But it's like, that is what postmodernity is all about, you know, to be open up, to be empathetic and so on. And in my point of view, he critiques equally as, as, uh, as Wilbur does the, the uh, pathological sides. But, but at the same time, I think he knows exactly what postmodernity is about. He enacts it. He's embodied, he embodies it from my mm. point of view. Mm. Well, I, I think that... that 
that's an interesting I, th- that's postmodernity like you know so many words mean so many different things right. you know in terms of what you want to emphasize uh so um i i think that he i think he yokes together you know he always talks about postmodern marxist you know radical left you know that's his he what he's doing there is he's taking a lot of different threads yoking them together to create in his own mind a particular threat right okay uh and then and then the question for me is how, how real is that threat that he is so uh, active in trying and how effective does he tie them together? And my argument is, is that he makes a very important point uh, in doing that and he way overshoots it. I, right. I, call him a, I call him a very sensitive canary in the coal mine uh, <laughs> of the academy. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, yes, we have some problems and Peterson just went off. <laughs> Right. Uh, by yoking together these problems and, and making it. Uh, I, I'm a fan of Jonathan Haidt. You mentioned Jonathan Haidt's uh, work. Um, I'm a fan of his work. I think that he also points out that the academy drifts too far left uh, and that we need more diverse voices in thinking about this issue. Um, and, and I believe that too. I, I'm, I'm a fan of, of some of that. But I also definitely appreciate you know the fact is that we are in especially in psychology we live in a the, the context is postmodern in many ways in right. the sense that there's it's a fragmented set of ideas uh, and that affords us that's in many ways good <laughs> you don't want to we don't want a totalitarian authoritarian system right. that's for sure i mean like it's, it's kind of absurd because we were just talking about justification and i think you have to have a, a certain bias to think about Jordan Peterson like that. So I'm aware that's kind of a, the joke of all. But I think if you, if you detach it from, from the person, and I think I, I, I want to make a larger point here because we're talking about language and justification and all of that. Because, you know, now, two years after, you know, he appeared, our, our language system has changed. You know, you, right. mentioned, you mentioned um, neo-Marxism, like that's like mm-hmm. everybody uses that now. Right. Everybody has a marker. And so getting, getting a step even further, you know, what, what Ken Wilber did, with, not just with his Aqual or his uh, models mm-hmm. that you can, but with his language, you know, and I, I think like when I, when I read or when I interact with the metamodern folks, the yep. language is quite similar. Yes. You know, and I find it's very interesting because, because it's, it's a different approach. The language is kind of similar, but when you, when you compare it with, say, other post, postmodern mm-hmm. approaches, mm-hmm. you have like a complete different language game. Mm-hmm. Then, then, then like performatism of, of um, Raoul Eshelman. So he mm. comes to a complete different, he uses a different approach but right. it comes basically to the same results. Mm-hmm. And then it gets interesting when you can compare these different, different meta systems and see like, what do they have in common? Where, where do they, do they uh, diverge? And like, what is the common thread in all of them? Brilliant. You know? And so that's, I, I think this is super interesting. Yeah, yeah. So my, my term for this is that there is an integrative pluralistic movement that is happening in response to postmodernism. And right. by integrated pluralism i mean basically you had the modernist view that was seeking truth you know scientifically and then you have the postmodernist view that says critiques that and deconstructs it right uh and so the and then the issue is well i as far as what i can see all the meta approaches are doing some form of dialectical framing between these two okay so there there's an integ and what i mean by an integrated pluralism is the pluralism appreciates the modernist critique that there is no point of view from 
nowhere or everywhere that gives you absolute truth. And everybody then is social, culturally, historically located in their power and justification system dynamics. They don't use that term, but that's mine, but that's basically what they argue, right? There's local situated historical justification. That's right. the best you can do. Right. Okay. And then, but then th that the logical consequence of that is you fall off a, a mountain, you know, the hole into pure relativism. So what I say and you say, and there's no way to, you know, uh, just differentiate truth from fact at any level and everything becomes so relativistic. And so then you get the integration back, the pull back that says, hey, there are center points that you can drive a stake in and, you know, and pull people say, hey, there are certain kinds of truths. Uh, and I see something like big history, for instance, at the science side of the equation going, we do need to take a step back. But actually, if you map our science on the time and complexity dimensions, man, does that that give you a really interesting big picture view? That's pretty simple, but it's also organized as a whole whole bunch of different stuff. Right. Um, and uh, and of course, metamodernism really is about the dialectic between modernism and mo postmodernism and finding a synthesis uh, you know, in relationship to that. So performatism so, also, you know, it's, okay. uh, it's a, it's I wasn't familiar with that, but that's the, so there it is. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's a, it's a, prof a professor from Germany, um, who, who developed it. He had like the, the approach. He actually looked at culture and what is happening now. He looked at architecture and literature and mm -hmm. movies and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and he tried to try to find like what, what, where are the movements beyond like, postmodern architecture and stuff like okay. and, and what what are, what is the common what are the common elements and and he found out well that's at least his model that that um that for example post postmodern or performative artworks they come what, what is the word they bring you in a position to believe in something although you know it's it cannot be true and so, ah, okay. so and this, you recognize them the the theme so you have like you have like the deconstruction element you know there can't be truth, but we, right. we have this performative act where we can, we are forced by the artwork to right. choose a big narrative. And what right. we get by that is a form of beauty and yes. a form of sacredness. Yep. And so he has like this, this new thing and you find it like in lots of books and then even in the new Tarantino movie. I don't know if wow. you've seen it. So it, I haven't, like, but I, that makes perfect sense. And yeah. in fact, uh, you know, the thing behind me, right, you know, is a picture of this artistic garden, uh, you know, with a tree in the center of it, uh, you know, and, and I called my system the tree of knowledge in many ways because I believe that we needed uh, metaphorical truths uh, to go organize our narrative about morality and spirituality and being in the world. And, and you know, I, I think I'm similar in Jordan Peterson, although he may be a little bit more um, sort of ontologically questioning, you know, the existence of a Christian God or whatever. But, you know, I, I, I really embrace the idea uh, of embracing these metaphors and, and get, allowing ourselves to understand them as metaphors, but to embrace them and see them as, as enabling us to appreciate the sacred, uh, which is unbelievably key. Okay, so how, what, what exactly is your stance on, on spirituality, on the sacred? Like, how do you, in what yeah. way do you integrate that? So, uh, great question. So, the tree of knowledge is a map of scientific knowledge, okay? So, it says, okay, here is, and, and, and it says that science plays a particular kind of language game, okay, for understanding the world. It's this objective, third person, strives to be, strives to be objective. Um, and, and so, there's that. But there's a lot of extra scientific, outside of scientific, which I broadly call humanistic concerns, 
okay, uh, that cannot be played with the language game of science, all right? So science, so the tree of knowledge says si the key language concept for science is behavior, and, and it measures behavior across those different dimensions, matter, life, mind, and culture, and gives us an objective language, okay? But there are, and, uh, there are two center points uh, that I argue, attend, two central concerns that are outside the language of science, and they are the central concerns of, of the humanistic being in the world. Right. Okay. Uh, so the first is the individual. Are you level. using the, the term of Heidegger by in Similar. purpose? Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I'm, I'm going to embrace in, in, those, in the individual level, I'm going to embrace phenomenology. Okay. A particular kind of phenomenological perspective, uh, which is the unique particular ideographic phenomenological perspective. Lots of academic words there, but it essentially means Greg Henriquez's uh, or Tom Amrak's, you know, key perspective on the world from your unique particular viewpoint. Okay. Right. And science, which commits to a third person behavioral viewpoint can infer that you have a consciousness, you're, you're, but there's an epistemological gap between the language game of science and the first person. And so right. really, um, we can only model that, uh, but we don't know, you know, but I, speaking for myself, I know that my consciousness is more real than anything. That's a, uh, you know, Rene Descartes stance, basically, you know, I, I think or I feel, therefore I am and I know. And so there's nothing more true than my own ideographic consciousness at one particular How is it to be a bet? Yes. Yeah. Which, should, right. That's the Nagel into question philosophically that says there's real limitations. That's what I call the epistemological gap between a scientific understanding and a first person phenomenological view of the world. So that's currently that's outside of scientific understanding, you know, at, at least in terms of directly we can infer it. And and I absolutely support consciousness science studies. OK, but the ideographic unique particular is in the real world is not part of the science language game, okay? And that is, to me, that's the language. Now I'll bring in the language of the soul and spirit for that kind of, so it's my life world, okay? My life being in the world. I often say my life world, life quest, okay? So the world is where I am. My quest is what is I, am I becoming in my own unique particular way that's, in, that's grounded in my, the phenomenological experience of being, uh, that disappears when I fall asleep deeply, flickers when I dream, comes back online when I wake up, and is at some level there's an aspect that's uniquely my own. So, so but how, more, to be more precise, how do you model states like I amness or, or samadhi or, or mm -hmm. the states which are void of any language vortex, but are pure consciousness or pure psyche? How, how do you model that? How do you? Well, we can model it in relationship to, we can, we can just, just like now, you gave inner subjective language to it at one right. level, right? And at the same time, when the language, it's sort of like the Tao, the, the, the Tao is not the Tao. We also know that if we're talking about it and developing conceptual models of it, and really that's not the thing. Okay, so, so it is hard to model. No, even, even in the tree of knowledge, is it on top of culture or where, where do you position it? Oh, no, it? well, the, 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 the phenomenological self emerges at the top of mind, actually, oh, right. in okay. terms okay. of in, if we're scientifically deciding where does the phenomenological self emerge, okay? Right. That's when it emerged scientifically. Right, now, okay. Mm -hmm. For me, however, the, my Greg Henriquez real world, 
the, the tree of knowledge is an onto epistemological belief system. Right, right. My mm. real world is wearing a shirt right now and drinking coffee. <laughs> you know, it's, it's right. so there's the belief system about how you make sense out of the world. And then there's the ontic reality that is the world. Right. Mm. Okay. And my first and phenomenological experience is part of that ontic reality. And really, that, that science will never have a science of Greg Henricus's phenomenology. It will say things about it, but it right. won't, there's no science of it. Right. Okay. So it's, it's, it, to me, what that, that's a wonderful thing, an important thing. It's consistent with my own work as a clinician. And what it does is it preserves the unique particulate of the soul and spirit. And, and it embraces language of soul and spirit. It's extra scientific and, and useful and important. Right. You know, and indeed for each one of us, what is more important? When I say the soul, uh, I'm using it at Ken Wilber's term and sort of that's the everyday form of my life. Okay. And the tasks of, you know, dealing with my kids and getting a job and doing all that. My spirit is the higher transcendental hopes for good that transcends my ego soul concerns uh, right. and, and says, okay, these are the higher purposes that I have. So soul into spirit refers to my own conception of who I am, what am I doing, and what's the ultimate good that I am seeking to uh, transcend uh, and, and be a part of. Right. So that's my soul spirit language. And I embrace the idea that that's a different epistemological language game than the language game of science. Right. Um, so that's the humanistic. That's an extra scientific. The cool thing about the tree of knowledge is that I can shift back and forth between my scientific language Okay, and my soul spirit language, right. and not have any problem. Right. Meaning that it's not like if you adopt a physicalist, mechanistic, reductive view of science. Okay, that really science tells us. I had a nephew came home after his first year in college. He took a analytic philosophy course and some neuroscience course, and he's like, "Well, what did you learn?" He's like, "Well, basically, I learned them all just a bunch of chemicals, and my life has no meaning." And I was like, "Oh my God." <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like that. He, he, whatever professors he had, basically had this reductive, atheistic, reductive, mechanistic view, and he had it at the brain level and at the philosophy level. And you know, he interpreted that. So now his belief system was that his phenomenology and his his choices—they were all an illusion. They made no sense and didn't really matter. And we're all just different forms of matter. And you know, we're all just bullshitting when we say things matter. And you know, it's all just matter, not mattering. And I was like man, that's sad. You know, that, that is not, that's not my view of science. Uh, and that's, and I think that's, that's the limitation of a, of a scientific language system that tries to eliminate, uh, reality. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, that's crazy. Um, so, but I can say, yes, I'm a, I'm an investing entity The behavioral investments, part of the theory. I'm an investing entity. I'm a justifying entity. That's my scientific and then I'm unique, Greg Henricus, with a real feeling system, and that's my humanistic way. But what you're saying, and it's it's kind of funny, is that we can never answer the question what psyche is. Well, well, I'm saying uh, depends on how you define psyche here. Okay, right. If okay. You're, if you're, how how if, would you how would you define it? Right. So the nice thing about if I use the cool thing is if I use the tree of knowledge and I use uh, Aristotle's view of psyche. Okay which is the form of my life, I can see the form of my life from the inside and the outside, okay? So, I mean, think about all the people you know. You see the form of their lives from the outside. And, you, and, and if you're married or, or, you know, you have long-term partners, you get to know somebody super well from the outside, right? right? Okay, so I can, my wife knows my soul pretty darn well, 
Okay. Right. I mean, she's lived with me she's, she, and she'll know parts of it better than I know because I'm in denial about parts of my own shit. Right. That's what we all are. So let's be Sometimes clear they know better, the females. Absolutely. It's, so or they claim to, be, to know. Uh, well, you know. Uh, so, and as a therapist, I certainly know that I can see things in people that they can't see. Okay. So the third person perspective on the form of your life is a very important one. Carries right. a lot of validity. What they can never know for 100% fact is the philosophical zombie question. Okay. In other words, I don't know. And the way I know I'm not a zombie, I don't know my wife's not a zombie. At some level, in theory, she could be a robot. You know, um, that's the that's the interesting uh, epistemological gap, and it's right. that epistemological gap that we have to contend with. And 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 I embrace that epistemological gap, and that creates the space for the humanistic individual, in my estimation. Okay, so so we have basically the Wilbur view of exterior and interior. Okay, and and the core ideographic interior in my system is preserved as a humanistic concern. Okay, all right. Okay, and we want a scientific language that allows the humanistic experience of being to be commensurate and lined up with the third person scientific analysis of my behavior from the outside. Okay. All right. So so that's the that's and that's one of the extra scientific concerns the other will be more familiar uh at least or you know that that one's somewhat more complicated and these are the concerns about ethics and morality okay how do we as as a group ought to live our lives and most people will know that you can't really take science uh and decide through science the foundational values uh that we ought to live by okay i mean the the, the question might seem a little bit random but i, I hope there's a point to it what is your stance to AI? Because like, what if, if there's like a computer who says, yep. well, I have consciousness. Yeah. I'm here. I have life. Sure. I'm, yeah, so, sure. Uh, well, we, I think we're going to have serious problems exactly figuring out. Uh, and that's going to be a huge uh, advance. A, a, if we can get an AI to behave like us, okay, then to know whether an AI can behave like us and have no experience or then would have to have experience, These are the futuristic questions, okay? Um, I am, uh, you've had a couple of people talk about the singularity on this episode, I think, Max Borders? Yes, yes. Right, okay. So I'm really interested in the singularity. I think that's an interesting concept. Uh, and so Ray Kurzweil, you know, sure. argues that it is the AI awakening. That's what that means. And Borders was arguing, no, it's actually more of us awakening via the digital. So to create a social Uh, bottom-up awareness of consciousness. I actually see it as the interface uh, between those. Oh, okay. Uh, and the uh, so very early on, when I developed the tree of knowledge, within a year or two, I basically saw the singularity through the tree of knowledge. Okay. All oh, right. Okay. So what the what the tree of knowledge says is is that remember each dimension of complexity, novel plane of complex adaptive behavior emerges when there is a novel inf information processing and communication system, okay? So it's genes into cells, nervous systems coordinating animal bodies, language can coordinating human minds, okay? And then the, so the next one would be some sort of independent information processing and communication system. Right, right. 
Okay. So at, right at the turn of the, at the millennium, we're like, oh my God, we're laying down the internet. We're building computers and building artificial intelligence that process information independently. Right. So when are those things all going to come together uh, and form a, a totally new landscape of adaptive behavior? Right. And I think that we're in the midst of the fifth joint point transition. That's what we're living through. And the singularity represents potentially that transition through uh, into the next phase of complex adaptive behavior. Where you, where you mentioned co complexity, where, where you informed by Stuart Kaufman's model of, of emergence yep. and com complexity and the, or the, all the Santa Fe uh, yep. studies and stuff Absolutely. like that. Yes. Because that's fascinating stuff, how he, how he explains how, how right. complexity, how out of, out, of, out of some forms, uh, a new complexity can emerge in quite a uh, short time. And so, totally. he, so yeah. Yep. No. So uh, absolutely. The, I realized very early on that the tree of knowledge was really was a map. The vertical dimension is a map of complexity at some level. Right. And then you realize just how complicated that complexity concept is. Um, but the, the Santa Fe folks and a number of other folks, but the Santa Fe folks have been a hotbed for that. And Stuart Kaufman uh, is one and Murray Gelman and others. Are and Per Bach and all those people. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I followed Follow those carefully. The tree of knowledge offers a novel, novel perspective on complexity because it, 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 it's not just a single dimension from the complicated into the complex adaptive systems. It actually says, no, the complex adaptive systems are mediated by information communication systems. And there have been these decidedly uh, clear jump points when different language systems, genetic language, neuronal language, human language comes online. And that's that is what generates a new plane of complex adaptive behavior. And actually that's a novel, uh, most complex, uh, virtually that's basically not existent in the language of, of complex adaptive systems. For, for our readers, could you could you could uh, shortly explain what, what you mean with complexity in, in this regard? Because we, yeah, we, so, it's, not, uh, it's not, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, so uh, the Santa Fe, basically complexity uh, was seen to be this sort of ubiquitous concept. Okay, which basically is sort of like, okay, there's a multitude of different parts and often parts then merge together and then uh, behave as a whole in relationship to a landscape. Okay, and so it's the way in which entities operate in different landscapes, uh, which is basically complex adaptive systems. Okay, and, and what the what the recognition is, is that there are these peaks and valleys in a landscape and a complex adaptive system will try to organize around moving up, meaning how does it gain organization? How does it maintain its, its system? How does it pull in resources? Usually a free energy kind of resource that then allows it to do work and maintain its composition when it's getting bumped around by all sorts of different kinds of forces right. okay, in nonlinear ways. So that's the, that's the basic model of complex adaptive systems and uh, chaos theory uh, and other kinds of uh, cybernetics, uh, which is a nonlinear feedback loop system, provided models for how do systems both maintain their organizational structure in chaotic fluctuation, right. and then how do they also evolve, adapt, and grow depending on the uh, challenges and resource availability and competition with other systems that are trying to grow in relation. So, right. so that's the basic outline of it. It's so um, it's so long ago that I that I read books about it, but I, I, as far as I remember, they distinguish uh, four 
um, modes of behavior. I think it was static, periodic, complex, and chaotic. And so, yes. you, and so, and, and so you want you want to be on on the edge of chaos. I think that was the the, the expression That's where right. you can where you can metabolize lots of uh, information from from the realm of chaos in a way and bring in new bring in new energy and, and and create new behavior in a creative and playful way which is kind of what should happen with the post postmodern movement by the way you know really 100% so exactly so uh, right so let's just say that uh, I'll I'll echo that back so the the edge of growth is found between uh, order and chaos, the dialectic between order and chaos. If you drift too far by order, then you're rigid and you're restricted and you're closed down. You're too conservative. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you lend into too much chaos and absorb too, too much stuff too quickly, then all of a sudden everything, there's, there's too much uncertainty in the system. Uh, right. And then it makes it massively vulnerable to spiraling out of control. Okay? Right. Uh, and so Jordan Peterson, by the way, makes this, he sees this dialectic between order and chaos as foundational to the human psyche. Uh, the yin-yang idea basically goes into that at a profound level. So right. the order of chaos is really huge, and it is exactly uh, the place, the edge upon which complex adaptive systems evolve, um, and that's where you want them. Uh, right. And, and, and so, and I would say, here's the way I think about our current global situation, okay? The current global situation, I think that we can map out, utilize this edge of complexity uh, this edge of complexity defined by order and chaos to see what we're potentially facing and to see the kinds of uh, possibilities for goodness that we are after and also the real dangers. Okay. So in the order side, I think that the digital world uh, can potentially turn into a nightmare totalitarian system. Okay. That George Orwell would have been like blown away by. Okay? Right. So, so well, what's happening all, in China with uh, well, with perfect. the survival? Exactly yeah. right, because because if we can create video images of you and I doing whatever, right, molesting a child or whatever right. would be the most horrible thing, right, um, and and then we get in fight with the government, and the government can just have somebody build a video of us doing the most horrible thing, and then distribute that, then right. everybody sees us doing the most horrible thing, and in a North Korean type of society, or, or you know, an emerging, I don't know exactly where China is, but I've heard some dangerous things right you get a complete the internet sets the stage because it's virtual it can just create whatever reality right and if we all plugged into it by necessity and somebody has totalitarian control it's an orwellian uh you know uh, disaster waiting to happen right know? so that's the order side of how the digital age can grow okay and then there's the chaos side the chaos side is the fact you know, all the metamodern people and many people are talking about, uh, you know, the human capitalism has been so successful at, you know, creating seven and a half billion of us and now trying to live lifestyles that we live. And that pulls so much energy out of the earth, of course, that we're creating all these different cuts and you get Extinction Rebellion trying to wake us up and doing these kinds of issues. But there's a real techno environmental crisis. Right. Right. Um, and now with the digital, uh, the digital age is creating so much chaos because what it's doing is it's opening up all these connections that the old national institutional industrial world, you know, was not set up for. You know, right. So issues of currency, issues of media, issues of governance, all of that now is massively in flux. And we're in a vulnerable environmental system. So you can totally see that if we're extracting the environment, 
digital is creating chaos. We don't have good meaning making systems. Everybody's competing. Right. And then eventually the resources shrink. People get more and more defensive. Uh, they're, they're confused as hell. So they regress to their animalistic tendencies to protect your tribe, hate everybody you don't understand. Uh, and the digital world just makes everything more complicated. And right. voila, you get a domino effect. We have all these weapons and other technical capacities. We blow the whole world up and you get civilization collapse on the chaos side. So that, that would mean that all the national, nationalistic movements around the world in the, in the West and, and Spain and Germany and America, it's like a, I mean, I think that was Wilbur's argument, right? Mm -hmm. That it's that like, like a stabilization function and that yep. you know, the, the pendulum swings back and so the people grab to some meaning, um, even if it's nationalistic. And, and totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a clinician, we see this all the time. Okay. So somebody comes in and, and if you're really stressed and, and you can't manage and all of a sudden everything's really confusion, you, you regress, you know, to, to, right. to right. what's familiar and what's basic and what's intuitive. And, you know, uh, you don't explore, you're not curious, you're not open. The alien difference is now seen as a threat because you're in a defensive state and then you want to attack right. uh, and you want to, and you want to grab a hold of your conservative, Uh, you know, truth systems, which makes good sense at one level. But if a lot of people do that simultaneously, uh, that's a bad state of affairs. Right. Let, let me come back to, to complexity once more in regard of post-postmodernity, because, uh, you know, it's like in, in many ways, I think this kind of stage of development or whatever we call it, it's, it's not just cognitive and it's not just like emotional. It's also like how we act and embody ourselves in the world, you know, That's how right. we, so, and, and, you know, it's like, how, how can, how can we act in a complex manner, you know, that we, that we metabolize new behaviors and new situ uh, situations and learn and grow. And I, I think way more than, because it's, it's, it's fairly easy to, comprehend say Wilbur's model you don't yep. you don't even need to be postmodern to understand what he's talking about sure so but I, I think like in many ways the way you act in the world and what you do is, is far more um, how do you say it shows far more um, from from where you're coming from that's right you know? so that's right. so like I, I think it's it's not just a state of mind but a state of yep. acting you know, 100% agree. 100 so, 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 yeah, yeah. And so, so here's what I think, you know, what we, we're in a really new place. Okay. Uh, this is a new digital landscape is opening up. There's lots of possibility and there's just a lot of emptiness in the landscape. I think that's why people are feeling a lot of confusion and right. a lot of hope simultaneously. We need intellectual models for thinking, but not just those by any stretch. Right. And we also need to recognize that in the, we're coming off the Western modern tradition. I don't know if you tracked Ian McGilchrist's work on the hemispheres. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that the Western modern is a logos tradition down the line, meaning that it's about logic and analysis and reason. And it's about, you know, the passions were regulated and cut off and, you know, not embraced and embodied. And so I think our, our awakening up to the East, uh, the West I'm talking about here, our interest in mindfulness and interest in meditation, interest in spiritual development, that's that phenomenological side that needs attention. Okay. So we need right. that, just call it the feeling mind. So we need the thinking mind and we need the feeling mind. 
and of course we're unbelievably social so and 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 we have to then have i like to call it the volitional mind the, the mind was like to to act out certain, absolutely you're right. brilliant so right then we have to be uh, the so then we have to turn our mind into the procedural will okay? right which is yeah so what are we going to do how are we actually going to act in the world right okay? and we need to act relationally which means that in other words we have to understand self and relationship to other We have to take care of ourselves and protect ourselves at the same time, have love and concern for other and hold that. And we have to hold it in context. And by in context, I mean, there's the digital context and, and all of the change and the mother earth context. Right. Okay? So ourselves in relationship to nature, whether we're harming mother nature, how we're going to live in a sustainable nature. So these are the enormously complex, you know, interacting domains of thinking, of feeling, of acting, of relating in the digital and Mother Earth context. Right, right. I mean, like you, you mentioned Gilchrist because it's interesting because he also, I think, modeled the, the light and left hemisphere in regard of order and chaos. Yep. And so I think that was the example that when you reach into a dark room and look yep. for the look for the switch, so yep. the, 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 which one is it? The, the um, right side mm -hmm. brain, kicks in and so you have all this chaos that's right you're, you're you're reaching with your left hand here because your right side is actually wondering about your context exactly. and then all of a sudden you you know you write with your if you're right-handed you write and analyze and grasp uh, right. with your right hand because what the right hand is doing it's pulling the figure out from the ground right okay? and the left hem uh, the right hemisphere and left hand is looking at the ground and wondering about what might come and and attack you Right. Uh, and so your, your avoidance systems, your negative affect avoidance systems uh, are more on the right hemisphere. Your approach uh, and positive affect systems are actually more left hemisphere. And right. Yes. So there's that dialectical defense and, and order uh, kind of dynamic that, right. is, that he does. Yeah, because, nice because I'm sorry, because it's so interesting, because still, I, th I think like from, from an autopoetic view, or an autopoetic view, viewpoint, what, what kind of states do you want to address or enact, yes. you know? Like, That's do right. you, in which situation is a more orderly approach, the yes. best approach? That's in right. which kind of situation is a more complex behavior yep. necessary? And what That's kind right. of behavior is, like, if you take um, DMT or, or mushrooms, yes. or, like, it's a chaotic right. approach, like, they're, they're like, like... Completely, completely. Right. So what happens, and this is why I'm really glad to see the psychedelic revolution coming, as long as it's regulated some. Okay. Right. So in the 60s, they, they, they took the lid off and that was not good. Right. But, then, but our culture has put the lid on too hard. And what people are seeing is actually in the right, if you set up a meaningful system, right, and you do rites of passage and you're like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a psychedelic. And what does a psychedelic do? It takes that justifying ordering mind and knocks it to shit. <laughs> right, right. right? And, then it, and then it opens up your phenomenological mind so that all of a sudden associations become real. Right. right? So their phenomenological mind is making these connections. And if you have one of those oneness transcendental experiences, all of a sudden you go from seeing and making the connections really just to dissipating into the systemic essence of being. Right. Right. And when you have those experiences of oneness, all of a sudden your place in the world changes. Okay. And it is the phenomenological self that anchors the justifying self. So what we are seeing with the psychedelic research is people are coming out of these episodes 
with a transformation of the relationship between their phenomenological and justifying selves. Right. You know, and, and it allowed their system of belief to be unfrozen and removed for a while. The phenomenological system gets reconstituated in a different sort of way. And then that belief system comes back and they're like, wow, man, I'm way more open, yeah. unchanged, you know, and, and their show, they show even, even the personality trait of openness can, can change. That's really a remarkable thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm. I did an interview with the son of Timothy Leary once. So that was kind oh, of... Oh, really? Uh, that, yeah, I, yeah, bet, yeah. I bet that was interesting. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a funky guy. Um, in fact, before he was an acid you know, guy, he did some really powerful research in personality theory. Timothy Leary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, wasn't, fact, isn't, isn't Jordan Peterson didn't have like the same seat? Like uh, as Timothy Leary, the same, yeah, they same were, chair. They were, I think. Well, I don't think. I don't know if he was ever chair. He was there at Harvard, but I, I don't know enough. So I know he was there for Harvard before he went to Toronto. Uh, right. And yes, they had the same. I think he had the same professorship. Right. Uh, right. You know, or came into that seat uh, for a little bit. Absolutely, that I think right. is true. And so that's interesting. And uh, but Timothy Leary, yep, he he was a personality guy. Actually, I incorporate what's called the circum circumplex model of personality, which says. Uh, that your that your phenomenological in my language your phenomenological relationship system operates on a vertical dimension right okay of, of power and authority and a horizontal dimension of love uh and and uh, connection and, right and that's actually a very very important insight uh, uh to our structure our our interpersonal core interpersonal relational structure Right. Of, I mean, he was of, such a he was such a trailblazer in so many regards, Timothy Leary. He was a, because he was a funky like, dude, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like he. I think he had his fingers in game theory. Mm -hmm. I, I think like he he was he laid the foundation for transactional analysis. I think I don't know exactly. Mm. Then there's like of course um, what what else was the personality tests. Which he, which he used to escape from the prison. So that, that's like a funny story. And, and huh. because, he, because he designed them, and so he okay. knew what he kind knew. of answers he, he should. So yeah, they I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know about that history, but that's fascinating. So, that's and, and then, of course, the, the, the model of, of the eight circuits of the human brain, which was like my, I told this on another uh, for me, it was the first time I was exposed to the idea of different stages of the okay. human consciousness. So, and mm. only because of that, I, I verged in a different direction in my life. Okay. But, okay. but you, you, do you think there's like a correspondent, an anatomical correspondent to, to like stages of mind, like in, in, in the nervous system? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I haven't read anything like about this, but... They're, they're yeah. No, they definitely are. Uh, so, you know, yeah, that's embedded in my system. Uh, you know, my system's got lots of layers. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, there's a thing. So uh, the base of mind in, in the tree of knowledge system, in other words, where does, how does life go transform into mind is a theory called behavioral investment theory. Right. Okay? And, and that's basically a theory of the nervous system. Okay. Which is basically the nervous system as a system of behavioral investment. Okay. And the nervous system starts off as a sensory motor reflex system. Okay. Uh, and then it turns into an emotional guidance system. Okay. All right. And, and then it turns into a thinking simulating system. All right. Okay. Okay. And, and that's the animal layering. Okay. So in other words, you get animals that are pretty much just sensory motor reflexive avoidance approach systems. Then you get emotional systems uh, that we see in vertebrates, 
Okay. And then you get more, you know, much more cortical development and they're simulating stuff and they're running through various passive behavioral investment and passive relational investment that they're right. tracking. Okay. Mm. And then what you get with a human and it's unbelievable capacity to simulate. So we have this gigantic cortex that then simulates, which by the way, is what allows us to start to symbolically tag these simulations and build language. And then you see the development of the human mind, which actually runs through, if you remember Piaget, right. you know, it runs through a sensory motor modeling. It runs through a guidance system modeling that's pre-operational. Then it gets a concrete layering of propositions. And then it gets formal manipulation right, right, of right. those proper mm -hmm. propositions. And then, of course, you can then go further and further about integrating up the post-Piagetian lines right. of, of thinking. But, but so in terms of the layering, what my system says is there's the animal layering and then there's the human layering, which actually replicates a lot of the animal layering through cognitive simulation. That's what Piaget, I think, was getting at. Which makes sense, of course. I mean, uh, like, sure. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny is an old... I didn't get that. What? Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Which yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mm -hmm. know, that's a... Can't remember the guy Hegel or something. Wasn't quite that. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the idea that development parallels evolutionary development, right? You know, individual development. Uh, so you you start off as a fish, <laughs> you know, with a tail or whatever, and then in as a zygote, and then you emerge, you know, down the line. And so there's some truth to that. Absolutely, it's a useful thing to wonder about. And, that, sure. and that's what that says about cognitive development. I mean, like even even in the stages of the de development, you never get rid of the earlier stages and the the myth right. and the storytelling. If you if you look at Extinction Rebellion and like the the Christian myths and yep. the the fervor and all of that, it's like you know yes. why yeah, why do we even why do we even think that we should and should take care of the planet? It's like right. without the Old Testament, you wouldn't think like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, and, and I believe, I, I do believe that the meta-modern insight, I like that emphasis, that emphasis on integration of previous levels, you know, and certainly Wilbur's insight to, to get to teal or integral or whatever is, is, does involve an appreciation for the functionality of each of those levels right. and the sophisticated integration across them. And, and that's certainly, my mindset's always been about a coherent integration of, of many different threads. And so I, I'm very uh, sympathetic to that sensibility. Right. Greg, I think we'd, we have talked now for over 90 minutes. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, think, I think that was uh, lots of material and <laughs> lots, of, lots of stuff for the, for the listeners to chew on. Thank you very much that you took the time Absolutely. doing this. Happy to do so. And I really appreciate the 